am trying to pry open your casket with this burning snowflake. I'll give up my sleep for you. This freezing sleet keeps coming down and I can barely see. If this trick works, we can rub our hands together, maybe. Start a little fire with our identification papers. I don't know, but I keep working, working, half hating you, half eaten by the moon. Hello, and welcome back to Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This is the first episode of 2024, and if you're back listening to me again, thank you very much. If you're listening to me for the first time, thank you very much. This week's poem is Dear Reader by James Tate. It is beautifully written and simple in its execution. As January closes in around us, I thought that the copious amounts of winter imagery were quite fitting. It is as close to the feeling of deep winter that a poem could reach, I think. There is a beautiful depth to this poem, which is only 13 lines long. James Tate is addressing his reader directly, whoever they might be. Most importantly, he is contacting us to share a secret. There is a quiet breath of intimacy in each and every line as he explains to us what drives him as a poet. Indeed, as the poem works its way through a blizzard, we, the reader, come to understand that it is a poem dedicated to the nature of poetry and the audience, that most mercurial of relationships. It is a testament to the difficulty of poetry, but more than that, to the ember of joy it can kindle if the poet gets it just right. The imagery of Dear Reader is all at once suspenseful and macabre. It is typical of the prowess James Tate constantly showed off in his verse. As I've said many times before on this podcast, today's writer was a poet's poet. A poet who is not immediately accessible to the general public, but beloved by those who've chosen the discipline of poetry as a lifelong pursuit. John Ashbery wrote of Tate's work, The main event is the poet's wrestling with passing moments, frantically trying to discover the poetry there and to preserve it. Perishable as it is, Tate is the poet of possibilities of morph, of surprising consequences, lovely or disastrous, and these phenomena exist everywhere. That morph that Ashbury writes about can be felt in every line of this poem. Each image slides into the next with a subtlety that leaves the reader almost confused at various points. That sense of confusion is only added to by the stark juxtaposition between the various images that Tate employs. For instance, in this poem we see oxymorons, like burning snowflakes. This contrast, combined with the variety of tones that the speaker uses when addressing us, sometimes sincere, sometimes mocking, amounts to a poem that leaves our heads as readers swimming by the end. This is, of course, Tate's intention. He was very clear throughout his life and career as a poet that what he truly wanted was to move the reader through a broad swathe of emotion, both positive and negative, with his work. In an interview, he stated, There is nothing better than to move the reader deeply. I love my funny poems, but I'd rather break your heart. And if I can do both in the same poem, that's the best. If you laughed earlier in the poem, and I brought you close to tears in the end, that's the best. The idea of accomplishing two quite contradictory goals is at the core of Tate's poetry. 
He would often leverage juxtaposition to unleash the absurdity and surrealism of the everyday. Today's poem is no different. Dear Reader follows a deceptively simple structure. A couplet, followed by a triplet, followed by a couplet, then another triplet, finishing in one final couplet. That's a lot of lits. This is not an established poetic form, but rather a structure that Tate has settled on to get his point across. In this episode, I'll have a look at each set in its own right, starting with the first couplet. I am trying to pry open your casket with this burning snowflake. Our speaker begins with a strange image, a dark image, a sealed coffin. Apparently we, the audience, are dead. May we rest in peace. This may be intended to be immediately jarring, to shake the reader a little, and to ensure that attention and concentration are given. This would be typical of Tate. The more we read of this poem, the more solid that interpretation of the opening image becomes. In the verb trying is an effort being made by the speaker. The level of effort is not hard to guess. This must be exceptionally difficult. Why do I say that? Well, the speaker is using a burning snowflake, an impossible image, an impossible object to try and free us from our tomb. Several things are occurring in this compact metaphor. Firstly, it's no wonder that we've not been freed. For the task the speaker is attempting, a regular snowflake would be useless, much less one that is on fire. Secondly, the image establishes a theme of futility, one that we will see again and again. Futility and frustration are at the heart of this poem. The speaker is putting a question to his audience. Is poetry futile? You may notice I'm drawing a lot of attention to the idea of the speaker in poetry, mainly because the idea of separating the poet from their poetry is one of the hallmarks of Tate's work. Tate was a poet from the United States who began writing his poetry in the early 1960s, right in the heart of the New York poetry scene, St. Mark's Church. If you'd ever like to hear more about the poets of St. Mark's Church, I have produced several episodes on them including one of my very first on Eileen Miles, Frank O'Hara, and Charles Simich. I will include links to those down below. As a natural side effect of that melting pot of ideas and literary rule-breaking, Tate's poetry was extremely experimental. Even beyond what his contemporaries like Charles Simich would, Tate always avoided straying into the confessional form that was exceptionally popular at the time. As critic Dana Joya wrote, as Tate's subsequent work appeared year after year in prolific profusion, it proved completely impersonal, perhaps in rejection of the excesses of the fashionable confessional mode. Despite his aversion to autobiographical writing, first-person perspective dominates the stanza of three lines that follows our opening. We should always bear in mind that it is not the poet himself who's speaking. I'll give up my sleep for you. This freezing sleet keeps coming down, and I can barely see. Despite the futility of their burning snowflake crowbar, the speaker is determined to rouse us, sacrificing everything at their disposal to move us. I'll give up my sleep for you. From this point onwards, despite me telling you to try and separate both, it's helpful to view the poem in two parallel timelines. The surreal world with the task of the speaker, and Tate's own work as a poet. 
the speaker will not give up on us and Tate will stay up all night to write poetry just to move us. There is a certain tongue-in-cheek quality to Tate's sacrifice as we get the hint that he'd be up all night writing anyway. Desperation mounts for our speaker as the weather does not let up and they are lost at our casket trying desperately to revive us. There is a wallowing self-pity from our speaker. Look at all this sacrifice I'm going through for you, dear reader. Tate is underscoring the frustration of authors attempting to please or satisfy an audience. A writer or a poet might do everything in their power to create well, to pen something that will connect with their audience. However, in the end, it still might fall on deaf ears. Or in this case, dead ears. In the next couplet, a glint of tragedy in the poet's effort is revealed. If this trick works, we can rub our hands together, maybe. A poet never knows if their hard work will pay off. The trick the speaker is referring to could be anything. A clever literary technique, a flourish of particularly poetic writing, a bolt of wit to keep us engaged, something that might forge connections between creator and audience. If they can pull that off, then both poet and reader may bask in some kind of warmth, some kind of shared experience. We can rub our hands together, maybe. But for anyone who has ever tried to create, poetry or otherwise, we know the effort does not forge the connection. Not always. Just when we think we're beginning to grasp what Tate is talking about, he throws another curveball at us, in the form of densely metaphorical imagery that feels like it's come from nowhere. Start a little fire with our identification papers. I don't know, but I keep working, working. The triplet now immediately follows on from the previous lines. Maybe start a little fire. This serves to intensify the pace of the poem. That, combined with the repetition of burning and warmth in the fires, slides us along and makes the new image that Tate introduces all the more abrupt. So much so that we almost slam into it with our identification papers. What on earth is happening? We're snapped out of the flow of the poem by a brand new image that doesn't really feel like it fits. But why? The reason is, as you may have guessed, very intentional on Tate's part. It's there to ensure that his dead reader is still paying attention. This whiplash imagery is something the poet would employ again and again in his work. When asked about his need to do so, he replied that the purpose of the technique was to set expressions in motion against whole new meanings so that you can't classify them as simple statements. The reader thinks that the poem is making a statement, and then, all of a sudden, the poem insists that the reader think about words, not about content. Tate wants to force us, his dear readers, to think, engaging with the work before us, so that his connection to us, and in turn, ours to him, burns all the brighter. He is not, by a long shot, the first poet to do this. He follows a long postmodern American tradition 
of jolting the reader to interaction, exemplified by the likes of E.E. E. Cummings. The identification papers themselves as an image are almost a mystery meaning-wise. My own interpretation is that through his poetic magic, Tate is hoping to reshape his own image or identity in the eyes of the reader. He wants us to believe something about him. Simultaneously, I believe he hopes that this trick will help the reader to think deeper, forging new parts of their own identity using poetry and on a broader scale, art in general. The speaker goes on to create a refrain, highlighting their own diligence and toil in the face of adversity once more. As before, it is a little insincere and references the unknowable quality of success. Will it happen or won't it? That refrain takes the form of the line, I don't know, but I keep working, working. Before we move on to the final couplet, I have a favour to ask. If you've been enjoying this episode or the podcast as a whole, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen. It really helps to get the podcast out to more people. Even better, if you know someone who'd enjoy this podcast, please consider sending it to them directly. Thanks a million in advance. With that being said, let's move into the last section. It is a simple couplet. Half hating you, half eaten by the moon. Again, the final word of the last set leads us smoothly into the next. Working, working, half hating you. It is here that an ugly truth is revealed, if only for the speaker themselves. They are stuck in a love-hate relationship with their reader. The speaker, and in turn Tate, the poet, will continue their frustrating effort to raise the dead, us, even if it means that they have to give up everything. The final line is completely haunting, half eaten by the moon. We finally gain an inkling into the speaker's obsession with poetry. Their want to write it has led to complete insomnia. Aside from half eaten by the moon being the most beautiful turn of phrase I've ever heard for insomnia, there is a further note of tragedy in the image. We realise that our speaker has been at this fruitless endeavour for a very long time, and that even if there was no reader, they would probably keep going. Thus, we were never that dear to them to begin with, and they are completely consumed by poetry nonetheless. This might seem oddly bleak as a final note, but in all honesty, I think this is one of the most beautiful explanations of what drives an artist that I've ever come across. The audience truly doesn't matter, and I don't mean that to be insulting. If an artist finds value in what they are doing, that is what will propel them. I think it's particularly poignant, given that we're living in an age where audiences exist and have a certain sense of entitlement when it comes to the artists they love and follow. Fandoms in general are at an all-time high. With that comes expectations of artists, or a sense that the audience should get to dictate what comes next. James Tate has written a quiet rebuke to this notion. The artist would do it without you, whether you like it or not. As for the strange tone of the poem, all at once both tragic and comic, it's something that Tate was obsessed with. In an interview with his friend and contemporary Charles Simic, he was asked the question, so for you, tragedy and comedy are not separate. In response, he said, no, not at all. They're in the same theater, on the same stage. That's true of the best poems, 
You can't tell where they're going to go. One can start with tragedy and end with comedy or the other way around. James Tate understood the unknowable quality of both poetry and art and refused to have anyone tell him which way it was going to go. I think in this poem, dear reader, he has created a small reminder for fellow poets that their work is their own and shouldn't be dictated by those who claim to love them. And I think that's a wonderful notion for any artist to carry into 2024. But what did you think of the poem? As always, this is my interpretation, and I'd love to hear yours. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few ways to do so. You can email me directly at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch through the podcast website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter at Words That Burn, and now also on threads at Words That Burn Podcast. I'm on Instagram at Words That Burn Podcast, and TikTok at Words That Burn 2. You will find links to each of those below in the description. If you'd like to read the script for this week's podcast, complete with citations and sources, check the Substack link below. If you enjoyed the episode or know someone who might, consider sending it to them directly or leaving me a review wherever you listen. I'm looking forward to publishing more episodes in 2024 and I would love to hear what poets you would like to explore on the podcast. As always, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to me. Hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.